All right, well, good evening, Evie Free. Hi. All right, my name is Eddie Park, and I'm one of the teaching pastors on staff. And I want to talk about something that happened this past week that has changed our society and turned it sideways. You guys might be knowing what, I've, what I'm talking about. You might see people out on the street more, walking. It's kind of nice to see people out walking around at night. I, I, you know, people usually just walking their dogs, but there's a lot of people walking out at night, and then you see this glowing on their face. Uh, if you still don't know what I'm talking about, you, you might uh, notice that people are not using crosswalks anymore or signals. They're just aimlessly walking onto the streets, not even knowing that cars and traffic are going by. And if this doesn't do it, this doesn't do it. I, I had this experience, no joke. I was at Target, and you know when you're, those, those aisles are narrow. And I'm trying to get through this aisle, and there's just a woman on their phone, just like a zombie, just flicking, flicking things at me. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm trying to catch a Zubat. That's what she said. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, I'm talking about the game Pokemon Go. Do you guys know that there's, a, there, there's this game that was released called Pokemon Go this past week? If you don't realize how significant this game is, it, it's, it's a game where it's leveraging the technology of virtual reality. It uses our reality, Google Maps technology, and embeds an alternate universe, which is the Pokemon world, where you can actually go inside the Pokemon world and catch Pokemon. You guys seem excited about this. Um, but to, to just kind of give you some perspective on, on the global impact of this game, within two days of Pokemon Go launching, it's affected our global economy. Within two days, 48 hours, the Nintendo company, which owns about a third of the Pokemon brand, went up $7.5 billion in two days of launching this game that has global impact. Uh, you, you know, it, Nintendo has been hurting for the past like seven years. They've been losing out to competition like Xbox and PlayStation. But again, this game has single-handedly changed the narrative of Nintendo company without putting a face of a mustache Italian plumber on anything that they're doing. Talking about Mario, obviously. And, and uh, how many of you downloaded this, this game, this app? Don't be ashamed. Okay, I was roughly thinking maybe 50%. Okay, I do believe it's still 50%, but maybe some of you are not raising your hands. Um, I personally have not downloaded this game. And it's not because I don't want to. Trust me, I really want to download this game. Uh, I feel like I'm the only one not playing this game. But a part of me, why I'm not downloading Pokemon Go is because I'm afraid that I'm going to get addicted to it. I'm afraid that I'm going to be on my phone more than I already am. My wife would not be happy. And, and, but to be even more honest with you, why I'm not downloading Pokemon Go is because I, I just feel like it's going excuse me, it's going to prevent me from being successful. Uh, I, don't, I don't really have a lot of time uh, to waste on a game, especially when, you know, I, I'm trying to be successful at being a father, uh, a husband, uh, a preacher, a worker, a friend. I, I just, it's been embedded in me to be, uh, to be successful. And, and you might say, well, Eddie, what, what is really success? Success is shaped by our culture and, and society. And that's true. 
in my, in my culture, which is an Asian culture, obviously, um, my, my, my idea of success was graduating from a prestigious university, top 20 university, so that we can get a successful job, so that we can become something like a lawyer, a doctor, or a businessman, so that we can get married. Because Asians don't marry off their daughters to non-lawyers, doctors, or businessmen. <laughs> Maybe an accountant. Uh, so that we can buy a home and make lots of money and fill that home with 2.5 children so that our children can grow up and graduate from prestigious universities so that they can also get married and become doctors, lawyers, and businessmen so that they can buy homes and fill it with 2.5 children so that their children, and you can kind of see the cultural value of success. This has been my worldview of what success is uh, and has just shaped me incredibly. So our culture and our society has really kind of built this paradigm of what success is. Shockingly, I, I spoke at, I gave this talk at UC Riverside at a business fraternity, AK Psi. I don't know if you guys know that fraternity or not. And I gave this talk on entrepreneurship night. And one of the questions that I asked this fraternity is, what would you consider a successful annual salary? What would, you, what would you consider a, a salary, a dollar amount of bringing in every year successful? What, what do you think they said? Unanimously, no student said anything below $1 million. $1 million. And that's fascinating because they have no idea. <laughs> they have no idea what they're saying. You know the 1%, the top 1% earners in this country, the bottom of that 1%, do you know how much they bring in? $400,000. So for an individual to say that, that they're not successful unless they bring $1 million annual revenue is saying that they're going to be above the top 1% in this country. It's fascinating. And it's troubling as well that Something in our society has shaped us to view that this is success. Bringing $1 million in annual income as success. And so I think it's, 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 it's very important for us to really define what real, meaningful, and true success is. And so we're going to be looking at a book today. Uh, and, and, and a man named Paul is going to be explaining what he views as success to a very, very successful people that don't think that he's a successful person. So we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your phone apps, if you have your iPads, uh, or if you want to just stare at the screen, we're going to be having the passages up there for you. Book of Philippians. Um, you know, something, something that I like to do is I always like to share a few things to consider before looking into a book that we're going to study. And, and firstly, it's a letter. The book of Philippians is a letter, but it's not just any letter. It is a thankful letter. Paul, unlike some of the other letters that you read, like Galatians or Corinthians, Paul's really annoyed in those letters, but not so in Philippians. Philippians, Paul is so thankful. He has so much gratitude for, this, for these people. He's, he's, he's really happy with them. He has, he's overjoyed with them. He says, in, he says in verse three of chapter one, I thank my God every time 
I remember you. Not just sometimes, but he says always, every time. Secondly, this is a very personal letter of Paul. He he, he writes with, he, he writes and talks about people by name, Epaphroditus, Timothy, Euodia, Syntyche. He, it's a very personal letter. He, you can tell that Paul has spent time with these people intimately. He knows them. He knows what they value. In verse 8, he says, God can testify how I long for all of you with affection of Christ Jesus. He knows them. It's very personal, but the, the, the insight that I want to highlight is that this letter is a prison letter. It's a prison letter. And why that's important is because Paul's imprisonment to the Philippians is seen as utter failure. Now, I can imagine in any culture, going to jail or being thrown in prison is, is failure, but it really is failure to the Philippians. And it's because... The Philippians are a very noble people. Not just noble in wealth, but noble in honor. See, the city of Philippi was a place for retirement of high-ranking military officers. Or, or, or it was a place where, where senators and consulates would go and reside and retire. So there's something in, in the culture of the Philippians where, where they understood that Paul's imprisonment, they know what's going to happen. They know that Paul is going to be killed in the Roman government and that his entire history, his entire resume, all his, all his accolades will be erased from history. See, the city of Philippi, what they valued culturally was they wanted their name to be engraved in stone on these city walls. They had all their accomplishments, their resume just embroidered on all these stones in the city. That was a value for them. And so when they, when they heard about Paul got in jail and prison, they just, they felt sorry for him. They felt ashamed for him. He failed utterly. His life's going to end. I, I know the Roman government. I know how his life's gonna, they're gonna say that he's a crazy person or just wipe him out. And they knew that Paul didn't have any heirs or children to carry on his legacy as well. So they felt sorry for him. They saw his imprisonment as a failure. Well, again, I want to, I want to share that. Remember, Paul, he, it's a thankful letter. It's a very personal letter, but it's, it's not quite three cheers for the Philippians. It's maybe more like two and a half. There's still a few things that he wanted to correct with the Philippians, and it was the way that they viewed his imprisonment. And so we're going to be looking at verse 12. So let's read together. He's sharing with them. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what had happened to me, my imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. I know that you think I'm a loser. I know that you think that I failed by getting arrested and being retained and not being able to fulfill my mission. But I want you to know, be very clear, that what has happened to me actually advanced the gospel. How? Well, he says in verse 13, brothers, as a result of my imprisonment, it has become clear throughout the whole imperial palace, the whole palace guard, and to everybody else that I am in chains for Christ. P- 
people that had no idea who Christ was, they know why I am in jail and why I'm in prison. And for Paul, he's conveying to the Philippians, you think that I failed. But I tell you, my failure has actually advanced the gospel. People who would never know, who have never even met a Christian, have now got to hear me proclaim Christ and why I'm in prison and in jail. Not only that, Paul says this, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Not only have I been able to share the gospel and proclaim Christ to people that have no idea who Christ is, but other people have heard about me. Church, other people have been inspired to live more boldly, to proclaim Christ in in, in the face of terror, in the face of fear. It's not failure. My failure has produced what I live for, what I would die for. And if that's not enough, Paul convinces them by justifying, hey, you 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 wanna try me? How much I care about Christ and the gospel to be proclaimed? He says this, I know that people are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. I know people are just swindling people trying to gain more fame and, and honor. I know, that, I know that in Philippi, some other preachers are being raised up and they're taking over my mantle and they're getting, gathering all this follower. And what is, what is Paul, Paul says something confusing. He says, what does it matter? The most important thing, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false mor- motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. He's, he, he uses an, a hyperbolic argument saying, I know that they're not being genuine. I know that they're being insincere, but I value the gospel. I value Christ so much that even when they are preaching Christ out of false pretenses, I still consider it a success. I rejoice even. In other words, Paul is, Paul is showing the Philippians success is not what society says, but it's about living what you would die for. It's not about what society and culture shapes us to think that success is. But are we living what we would truly die for? And to the Philippians, Paul is saying, I will die for Christ. He sums it up in the most iconic, one of the most iconic phrases that Paul has in the New Testament. He says, for me to live is Christ. And to die is I win, I gain, because if I die, I gain Christ. I get to be with him. But my life will be about Christ. Success is not what society says, Philippians, church. Are we living what we would actually die for? 
And he presents to them a life that will die for the message of Christ. What, is, what does that look like in the everyday? You know, I, I feel like I see it in the rise and development in the area of special needs. My best, friend's wife, my best friend's wife, Liz, she is amazingly brilliant, super talented. She was a superstar rising in this big organization. But recently, she decided to give her life for the area of special needs and disability, especially Asperger's. I did a wedding not too long ago, and in, in the premarital process, the bride-to-be, I... I she was going through a major career change in, in the middle of our premarital session. And she was, a, she was a fashion designer in L.A. for a major, major fashion company. And she decided, I want to quit my job so that I can be licensed as a behavioral therapist for children with autism. And I found it fascinating because it's like, man, I know so many, you know, people that would kill for your opportunity you're designing this and that you're actually you know you're you know what girl in her 20s wouldn't want to be a fashion designer but she says you know what i she told me a story about a boy the first time she met a boy with autism his name was ryan and he was about 10 years old and she said no one wanted to play with him no one wanted to play with Ryan. And she, was, she, was, she saw him and was like, I don't get why no one wants to be around him. Why is he so alone? Why doesn't anyone want to play with him? And later she found out he has autism. And as she was explaining this to me in premarital, she said, I couldn't sleep at night thinking about that little boy. Cutting a pattern for the next dress for, the, for some celebrity doesn't keep me up at night. That little boy, Ryan, he kept me up at night. My heart broke thinking that he's alone. And I found out that being licensed as a behavioral therapist can train children with spectrum autism to be more socially aware, to be integrated with society, and to make friends, and to have relationship with other people. You can teach that skill. And when she found that out, she decided to quit her job to be licensed as a behavioral therapist. I saw in my former senior pastor at the previous church I served at, he was the founding pastor. His name is Pastor Timothy Song. He founded a church called Good Stewards Church. And he left a very, very prominent megachurch in Los Angeles to plant a church in the heart of West Covina. And his heart was to reach people that wasn't reached. I remember he, he, he told me that he'd knock on, on all these doors. Hey, are you Christian? Do you go to church? They're like, no. He's like, perfect. Let's be friends. And, and 25 years later, he grew a church to about 800 to 1,000 people. And in the height of his career, the height of his, this church that he built, he, re- he decided to retire early. He decided to be a missionary in China serving an orphanage of handicapped, disabled adults. At the height of his career, he built 
He built this church. He, he evangelized to these people. And, and when I was on staff, there was no one more beloved than this man. And I just couldn't imagine, how did he leave this? Everything he built and, and worked for. And I got an opportunity to, to ask him, why did you leave to run an orphanage for, handy, for disabled adults? Adults with mental illness. And he looked at me and he said, Eddie, this was always about loving people that society ignored. That's why I planted a church. It was always about loving people that people didn't love. And it was always about serving them and loving them. And to this day, he is one of my models of showing what what society says about success is not true. But are we living out what we would die for? Paul says he would die and live for Christ. And he says it throughout the entire letter of Philippians. And to perfectly explain what, what it is that he's actually dying for, who is this Christ and what does he do and what does he teach us he summarizes it in chapter 2. So I want to end our time with reading the passage in chapter 2. Starting from verse 5. This is what Paul would die for. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not Consider equality with God. Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Why is this worth dying for? Why is this principle to serve, to consider another person's life more valuable than your own, to consider their interests more important than your own? Why is this value that Christ perfectly models and teaches to his church? Why is this worth dying for? Well, in light of society today, with all the shootings, with all the terrorism, what if that young African-American man knew and was treated that their life was, was worth more? That their life mattered more? That their interests mattered more? What if that policeman, the several that have been shot down in Dallas and Baton Rouge today, we just found out. What if people treated them like their life mattered more? that their lives matter. 
that their interests matter? What if, what if radicals that have no connection to ISIS or the fundamental movement of, of Islam, what if those lives here that have been radicalized, what if someone treated them that their lives matter more, that their interests matter more, and that someone loved them and served them? be free what would you die for if it's not Christ seriously try to answer the question what would you die for I hope it is Christ I hope it is this way of life that we have committed to living of treating and loving other people that their lives are more valuable than our own Let's pray together. Father, society says a lot of things about what success is. For some of us, it's an it's a income. For some of us, society says that we need a certain job, a certain family, a certain car, certain socioeconomic status, a talent, a gift, a following, a platform, all these things that society says that success is. But Father, we are reminded by the life of Paul that it is about living for what you die, would die for. And he showed us and to the proud church of Philippians that it is Christ. It is to preach Christ to proclaim Christ, to live like Christ. And for my brothers and sisters in this room, I pray that we would be woken up to the lies of this world and to the enemy, and of the enemy, that we would, we would ask, what would we die for? And are we living that out? I pray it would be Christ. I pray it would be Philippians 2 but your spirit, um, but your spirit will do that in us. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.